Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the creator of all things. Lord, you are the giver of life, that good and perfect gift. Lord, as we gather this morning, we thank you for the goodness that you have poured out onto us. Lord, as we think about the magnificent blessings you've given to us, a beautiful creation, you've given us the word of God, you've given us your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that we are overwhelmed with these big gifts. But Lord, we are also very thankful for the little things you give to us, the little things you give to us, green grass, that you give to us crisp weather, that you give to us soft pews and beautiful music. Lord, you bless us and bless us and bless us. And Lord, this morning, we pray that our worship would be acceptable to you because of what you have given to us in Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that you would tune our hearts to your truth. Lord, that we would recognize and we would humble ourselves before the glory of who you are. But Lord, this morning that you would open our ears to be able to hear your word, to hear what you would seek to teach us from your truth. Lord, we pray this morning that your spirit would be at work in us Lord, giving us life, helping us to understand the truth of your word in ways that connects with us in our everyday lives. And Lord, as we depart from here today, I pray that you would continue to help us to take what we have learned this morning, the things that we know, and that they would be impacting our everyday lives. And so God, we come to you this morning with humble gratitude, humble praise for the goodness that you have shown to us in your son, Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Mark, um, if you don't have a Bible or if you forgot one, uh, there is a pew Bible should be close to you. Our passage this morning is on page 837, and if you don't have a Bible and uh, you need one, um, feel free to take one of those pew Bibles. Um, only one caveat, that if you take it, you have to read it, all right? So we, that's our gift to you if you do not have a Bible. Well, this morning as we begin, I've titled this morning's message, Who Do You Think You Are? Who do you think you are? As we think about this idea that a few months ago, I had a nephew who graduated from IUPUI and family all went to dinner in downtown Indianapolis. And as we are um, trying, oh, kids dismissed the children's church. That's what you said, isn't it? (laughs) Nate said something a minute ago. I completely skipped it and I'm glad the kids are going. At this time, the kids can be dismissed at children's church. Who do you think you are telling me that? He's associate pastor. He knows more than I do. So this idea, so downtown Indianapolis, it is, there has been a, I think a Pacers game, something was going on that night, traffic is terrible, and we're trying to get to this restaurant, and a lot of the one-way streets in downtown, and, and, and we keep stopping, and we're like waiting and waiting, and we're like, what is going on? And so you're trying to look up ahead to try to figure out what's going on, and, and, and you can't, don't see anything. But the further up you get, you get outside of, of uh, some of the... Um, you know, St. Elmo's Steakhouse and the really nice restaurants, and their cars double and triple parked outside of it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And my question was what? Who do you think you are? I mean, who do these people think they are? They can park here, get out, go in, and, and have their steak, and the, the rest of us low life, so we just have to manage around your car and think, about who do you think you are? Now, let's change it a little bit, and let's suppose same scenario, and, rather, and, I, and so we end up in front of the same steakhouse, and there's a car. But as, I'm, as we're passing by, there are like two or three black SUVs, and as we're passing by, we see Mike Pence getting out, the vice president, getting out and uh, surrounded by Secret Service and going into the restaurant. My question would probably be different then. You know, it goes from, who do you think you are, to, oh, who do I think I am? <laughs> 
and realizing that it's not wise for the vice president of the United States to have to park six blocks away in some parking garage and make his way through Indianapolis. It's like, oh, this makes sense. Why? Because he, he, he should have that kind of protection, and he needs that. And so this question we often think about, who do you think you are in our own hearts sometimes? We're put in our place by who we are in light of who we're talking about. And this morning, as we're going to see in the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, there are some people who are asking this question about a statement Jesus makes about who do you think you are? And then Jesus demonstrates who he is to put them in their place, but also to demonstrate his glory. So in our passage this morning, where we are, Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, let's read those. It says this. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now, as we set up the context, he says he returned to Capernaum. If we look up earlier, look up in chapter 1, verse 38... Earlier, Jesus has been surrounded by the crowds. People are seeing him healing and doing incredible miracles. And the crowds are significant and they're really, really gathering. Jesus goes off to pray early in the morning. His disciples find him and Peter says to him, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And in that context, Jesus says this in verse 38 of chapter 1. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. And he went out through all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And we see in that passage that Jesus is telling us that his priority has been to preach the word of God. And in the midst of all of the healing and all the needs that the people has, he says, let's go to other places to preach. That's why I came. And then it talks about that he goes throughout all the region of Galilee. And then when we jump down to chapter 2 then, he returns to Capernaum, that's kind of his hometown area, after some days, so he's finished this this circuit up around the Galilee, Sea of Galilee of preaching, he returns back home, and it's reported that he's there, and many people are gathering, anywhere Jesus goes, a crowd gathers, so that there's no more room for them, not even at the door. I mean, you think about how crowded this is, I mean, think about... Maybe you've had some event at your house where it's a Christmas party or something, and your house is just packed to the gills with people, okay? Now, add about twice as many people to your house now, right? You're looking around, and there are people everywhere, people sitting in the windowsills, people sitting on your desk, all around the kitchen there. They're they're, they're everywhere you look. They're hanging out in your laundry room trying to see what's going on. People everywhere. It is a full house. That is, what, that, that is what Jesus was experiencing. And not only was the house full, but the doors and outside, the doors are open like them. People are looking in, the crowd's outside the doors. It is a full house. And as Jesus is there, it says to them that so that there was no more room, not even at the door, which is an interesting little detail, but people, there's not even room at the door anymore. And what does it say he was doing in verse 2? And he was preaching the word to them. Jesus was doing what was important. He's preaching. And so it's, it's, we, we've recognized that his healing has drawn a crowd, but now he seems to have his preaching seems to be drawing a crowd as well. And from this, we see a few things. We see in your notes, you have this uh, outline that we see that Jesus is prioritizing preaching. That teaching people, that is why he came. He certainly has concerns for people and he's healing, but his primary purpose is to preach. 
And we see this, that he packs the house, and as he packs the house, he taught the word. So this first little bit of it. And the question we would ask, and Mark, it's unique in the gospel of Mark, that over and over we're told that, and Jesus taught, and Jesus preached, and he preached, but it doesn't hardly ever tell us what he preached. It's a unique feature of Mark. We have much more teaching in Matthew and Luke and John, but Mark is much more just telling us what Jesus did. But the question we would ask then, so why is this preaching such a priority to Jesus? Why is it such a big deal? And as we think about this in Mark 8, turn back a few chapters, the book of Mark chapter 8. And we're going to begin to see why it is that the ministry of the Word has greater priority than this ministry of healing. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, in your pew Bible, this is on page 844, Jesus says this. He says, What does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This idea of gaining the whole world, I can have perfect physical health, beautiful home, beautiful cars, lots of money. And he says, yet, if I lose my soul, I've gained nothing. And, and then what's the connection of that to, to preaching? Now turn with me to the book of Romans. Keep turning towards the back of your Bible. And in Romans chapter 10, in your pew Bible, this is on page 946, that, 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 that preaching is a significant priority and why? It's a significant priority in the life of Jesus, and it should be in our lives as well, in the ministry of the church. It's a priority, and here's why. Look in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says this, Because if, you're, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, okay, that He is God, that He is everything He says He is, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, so we confess with our mouth, we're surrendering our lives to God in this belief. He says, you will be what? You will be saved. There's a promise in this, that we will be saved, we'll be rescued from our sins, that we will be forgiven and granted new life. Verse 10 goes on and says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, okay, we're made right with God through faith, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. He goes on. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Which means he's all of our Lord too. He's not just other people's. He's ours. Bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this emphasis that we see that, that if we can gain the whole world and lose our soul, we have, we've gained nothing. And in this we're said that if we confess with our mouth, we believe in our heart, we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. Okay, so the question is, what's the priority of preaching? What's that have to do with preaching? Look on down in verse 14. How will they then call on Him? How are people going to call on the Lord who will save them if they have not believed? And, and how are they to believe in him and who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. 
but they, all, but they have not all obeyed our gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed, believed what he has heard from us? And here's the key, verse 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Why is preaching a priority? Because it is preaching, it is proclaiming the Word of God, that people hear the Word of God, they hear the Word of God, they recognize their sin, they recognize God's goodness and His grace, they recognize and believe that Jesus has indeed died on the cross and rose from the dead. As a result of that, they call upon the name of the Lord. And what is the result? Okay, I'll try that again. They call on the name of the Lord, and they are what? Saved. That's it. That's what priority of preaching. That's why Jesus is more passionate about preaching than he is about healing. It's not that he doesn't care about healing because we see him heal all kinds of people. But preaching has priority because preaching produces eternal results. Communicating the word of God. As we think about our ministry of a church, that our primary ministry is the word of God and getting God's word into the ears and the hearts of others. And that is a primary ministry. We certainly want to be helping people with, with, with bills. We want to be helping people with counseling and helping them with marriage problems and all that. That is certainly a priority we have. But our biggest priority is communicating the gospel so that people will be saved. Because they can gain the whole world. If we've lost their soul, we have not really helped them. And so we see in this first part of Mark this priority of preaching. Well, back to the book of Mark, chapter 2. Let's continue on. In verse 3, it says this. Mark chapter 2, verse 3. This is back on page 837. So the house is packed. No room for anybody. Jesus is preaching. What happens next? Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Right? So this is a guy who's paralyzed. He is unable to walk. The only avenue of mobility he has is for friends to take him places. Right, And so these four friends bring him, and it says in verse 4, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, so these guys, they have this friend, they know Jesus can heal, and we're going to learn in a minute that these guys really understand who Jesus is, they believe the fullness of, of who he is, that Jesus is everything he says, they believe all that, and they see their friend is hurting, and they want to get their friend to Jesus because they know Jesus can heal their friend. And so they carry him on the mat. we got four guys carrying him. And they get to the house, and what do they see? There's no room. I mean, it is so crowded. There's no way that they could probably squeeze one of them through the midst of all the people to get to Jesus, let alone four guys carrying a mat. There's no way they're getting in. So these guys, aren't, they're not unhindered by that. These guys get creative. They look around and they see it's a New Testament house, a very typical kind of house. It would have a flat roof. Um, it would have stairs on the outside and people would, um, they would do things outside because it's cool at night and things, so it'd be on the roofs. And so these guys look around and they say, well, let's go to the roof. And so what happens, it says, when they could not get near him, verse 4, because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and they made an opening, and they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And these, these friends are undaunted. What do these friends do? These friends, they take the friend, carry him upstairs, and they start digging through the roof. Right? These tiles, they start digging through the roof. Now, imagine you're inside. Okay, you're inside, and you've... Then you got there early, and so you're kind of up by Jesus, and, and you're in, and you hear some stuff up top. You're like, that's not a big deal. That happens. And then, then you start to see, like, dirt's kind of falling in your hair and stuff. 
you know, and it's just crumbling, and you're like, what's going on? And, and then as uh, you're, you're kind of looking, probably a little distracted from what Jesus is saying, and, and uh, as you keep watching, and finally you see this little hole, and then that little hole becomes a bigger hole, and a big hole, and finally it's a big hole, so you're like, what is going on? I'm watching all this happen, and then you look up, and you see this guy being lowered by ropes into the very room that you're sitting in, and you're like, I haven't seen this before. This is creative. And they wanted to get this guy to Jesus, so they open the roof and they lower him to Jesus. And, and, and as we see this, it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, and, and I think the faith is the there, it's all five of them. He sees the faith of the four guys that carried the, 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 the paralytic, also the guy on the mat. He certainly would have had to be on board with this. He said he sees their faith. He says the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm curious. These are times when I'm in the Bible. I would love to watch people's faces, okay? Because these guys, I mean, imagine the guy's looking down, and you're looking up, and you see these guys' faces. You see the guy there, and Jesus says to him, looks at this guy and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What do you think the expression of those guys' faces were? In my, my imagination, I think they kind of looked, they looked it up at each other and thinking, that's not what we were expecting, um, it's clear this guy's a paralytic. We thought Jesus would heal him. We thought Jesus would, I mean, obviously the big problem is this guy's paralyzed. Obviously that's the thing that needs taken care of. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And wondering if somebody may have said, hey, Jesus, I'm not sure that's why they did this. I'm not really, I'm not, not trying to tell you what to do, but I think they're wanting something a little different. Now, we don't know that, but we certainly, if, if, if those guys are like us, they brought this paralytic for a reason. He's paralyzed. Jesus has been healing all kinds of other people to assume that's what they desired. And yet what we see in this is that we see that Jesus reprioritizes our problems. That Jesus prioritizes preaching, but he reprioritizes our problems. Because the four men in the paralytic, if they're like us, they saw, they would have concluded that my biggest problem is I can't walk. I need somebody to help me do everything. I can't feed myself. I can't work for a living. And I can't even go to the bathroom myself. Can't take a shower. I can do nothing. And the hurt and the, the, the challenge of a life of someone like that. And, and this individual, and Jesus, it, Jesus knows all that about this man. But the first thing he says to Jesus is not about his physical state, but it's about his spiritual state. Because Jesus knows that that man, just like all of us, is a sinner. And the thing that that man needs most is not to be able to walk. What he needs most is his sins forgiven. And so as we look at this, this group, they come to the house hoping to see Jesus. And yet in the midst of this, these paralytics, they're desperate. These friends, they're desperate. And we see this, that the paralytic and his friends are desperate for healing. But Jesus offers them something different. Jesus offers them something better. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. And as we consider that, what we learn is Jesus reprioritizes our problems. What we learn is that, we, we, we talked about this last week a little bit, that everything matters, but some things matter more than others. So, 
this man being a paralytic, it matters that he is suffering. But there is something that matters more, and that is his salvation. And that is the fact that he is a sinner. And as we think about this reprioritizing of our problems, I think it's important for us to recognize that God wants to reprioritize how we see our problems. Because very often we see our problems as our circumstances. What's my biggest problem? My marriage, my finances, my job, my kids, my... We get all these things that those are problems, and they're legitimate. They matter to God. But oftentimes we spend way more energy focusing on those things than we do the things God wants to teach us through them. That we pr- Our prayer lives often reflect that. Our prayer life is oftentimes more about, God, get me out of this jam. God, change my circumstances. God, make this person different. Make this different. Our prayers are much more that than, God, help me to grow and to change and to see you more clearly and to see my sin in the midst of this. And God, help me to become more like Jesus in the midst of these problems. And our prayers oftentimes are turned upside down because we have different priorities than Jesus does. Because as we would read in the Scriptures, we would read that oftentimes God leaves us in really hard circumstances, not because He doesn't love us, but because He does love us. And he is wanting to use those circumstances to transform us. And that we would learn and grow and that we would learn to trust him in these. And so we see Jesus reprioritizing the paralytic and his his priorities and the four men. But then we also see, though, that, that Jesus says to them, Son, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus reprioritizes this, we see that Jesus is focused on forgiveness. And he says, Jesus says, he saw their faith. So the question we would ask is, how did he see their faith? How did he see their faith? Because we would ask the question, how do we see each other's faith? I mean, because faith is something that really you can't see. It's something going on inside of me. It is this belief, trust, surrender, the person of God. How do we see faith? Well, the book of James helps us. And I'll just read the verse in James 2.18. You can look it up. James 2.18 says this. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Here's the key. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The point is this. If you're not doing anything, nobody can see anything. If, no, if you're not doing anything, nobody can see your faith. If you are responding in faith, we see the faith. I mean, we think of Nathan and Becca Mason. Do we see their faith? We do. They're taking a significant step. As we think about our own relationships, how do, how do we see faith? I, I mean, think about being in a conflict with someone. God calls us to be a peacemaker, to go and to be reconciled. How do we see faith in that? Not that we just sit and stew and stir and think about how they're wrong and what they need to do to fix that. How do we see faith? I get up out of my chair and I go talk to the person. That faith looks like something. And in this story, we see these five individuals, these four men and a friend, having incredible faith, this incredible faith in coming to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
These men believed what Jesus said. They believed that his work said about his identity. They believe that he is God. They believe that he can heal. They believe that he has brought the kingdom near. We've read that earlier in the book. Uh, they believe this. They've obeyed Jesus' teaching. They've repented. They believe. And they have faith. And now they're forgiven. They're forgiven in this. And as we think about this, Jesus says to them, Your son, your sins, plural, are forgiven. And I was thinking about, what does it look like for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven to this guy? And as I've thought about this, it's as though Jesus comes to us, and when he says to us, our sins are forgiven as we confess, as we believe in our heart, it's as though Jesus says, here, those sins, I'll take those. I'll take those. You have faith. You believe. I'll take those. And then we ask the question, what does he do with them then? Because we know that God is a just God who just can't like wash away, just can't just erase sin, act like it doesn't matter. What we see Jesus do is says, I'll take those. And he takes them all the way to the cross. And he bears the punishment that we deserve. The sins he takes from us, he takes to the cross. And he endures the punishment that we deserve so that we can be cleansed so that those sins are no more. As far as the east is from the west, our sins get separated from us when we believe this gospel. And Jesus says, I'll take those. And he dies on the cross and he raises from the dead victorious over sin and death. And he gives us new life and he changes us. Everything becomes different. And as we see this, and it's going on in the context of this, in verse 6, let's continue in our passage, and what happens next, it says in verse 7... Or verse 6, now some of the scribes, those are the religious leaders, those were guys who wrote out the Bible, wrote out the law, they knew their scriptures. And they're questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. For who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, these guys are asking the right questions. I mean, they're looking at this, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. These guys don't understand the identity of Jesus, and they're saying something that is absolutely true, that nobody can forgive sins but God alone. You can't do this. If you're not God, you can't do this. And so they're hearing Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, and inside of them, they're, they're kind of stirred up and thinking, this isn't right. This can't happen. And it says in verse 8, and immediately... Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, what's he saying to them? He says, Okay, you, you, I can tell you guys are wrestling with this in your hearts. He knows within his heart that he, this is going on. And as Jesus sees that, he says to them, Okay, which is easier to say... Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Now, on a, if we're like measuring like how much biological effort it takes to say one or the other, it's like, well, there's no difference. I mean, saying one thing versus saying another is not more hard than another. It doesn't, it's not hard at all. But Jesus' point is this. Which is easier, to say something nobody can verify or say something that somebody can test and check out? If I said to you, Okay, that on 
one of the galaxies 65 billion miles from here that there are these ant people that live there that know your thoughts and they communicate with ants here and they're the ones who are telling ants to march in straight lines and do what they do. That's why ants do what they do here because of those ants. That's pretty easy to say, right? Can you verify it? No, because it's 65. There's no way it's like that. How can you say that? And when we think about when somebody says, your sins are forgiven, there's no way for us to verify that. Can't test it. Don't know if it's true or not. And so he says, and which is easier, to say that or to say something you could test? If I said to you this morning, it's 53 degrees outside. You could say, oh, yeah? Let me show you. And you go outside and you look, oh, guess it is. You can verify it and test it, right? And so what he's saying is, you can say anything. But if you're going to expect people to believe it, you better be able to demonstrate why it's trustworthy. And he said, what does Jesus say? Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? And then verse 10 is our key verse of the passage. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them, them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Then what is Jesus saying? Jesus said to the guy, your sins are forgiven. They say, nobody but God can forgive sins. And he says, well, I have authority to do this, and I have authority, and I'll show you I have authority. And he says to the guy, get up and walk. The guy gets up and walks. So what should be now the conclusion about who Jesus is? He's the only one who can forgive sins. He's God. Should be their response. And we see the people amazed at this. And so what we see in, this, in our outline is that Jesus is proving his authority. That Jesus knows the hearts of the scribes and he shows his authority to forgive sins. He does this by doing what only God can do. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can miraculously raise somebody that has been paralyzed. It's instantaneous healing. This man picks up his mat and he goes home. Now, think about this guy. I mean, it's amazing. This guy has shown up paralyzed and he leaves able to walk. He shows up a life full of sin and he leaves sins forgiven. Everything's different everything's different. And I, I think about this in our lives, about, about what does Jesus, what difference does he make in our lives? I mean, this guy, I mean, he's, he is now going to be able to walk to the synagogues and to worship with everybody else. He's going to be able to travel down to Jerusalem and worship in the temple like everybody else does. He's now going to be able to get up and make his own breakfast. He's going to be able to get up in the morning and go take a walk outside without anybody helping him. This guy's now going to be able not just to be served by other people. This guy's now going to be able to help others. And, and as we see the transformation that would have taken place in this man's life, I challenge us to consider in our own lives how does what does the transformation of Jesus, what is it doing in your life? Because if you've repented and you've believed this gospel, your sins have been washed away. 
One thing that's really cool about this too, because in the big scheme of things that God, that the kingdom of God has already arrived, but it's not fully yet here. One day when Jesus returns, that we could say this, that one day when Jesus returns, we're all going to pick up whatever mats that we have left over and we're going to go home. It's a glorious picture of eternity. All the pain and the suffering and the physical difficulties that we have, one day when Jesus comes back, we're going to be able to get up and the mat, we're no longer going to need that mat. New bodies, full restoration, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. The whole old order of things is all gone. God's going to make everything new. And that is a glorious hope for us. And it's a glorious hope in the God who has given His Son, who has come for us to live now as forgiven people. Forgiven people who are hungry and thirsty and desiring God to continue to change us, who love God more than we love ourselves. And so on that little Y diagram, that picture we gave to Nathan and Becca, that when we're challenged with what am I going to do, we realize because God loved me by forgiving me of my sins, and one day He's going to bring full restoration. Because of that, I'm going to be shaped by this love of God. And it's going to impact the choices that I make. It's going to impact what I look at on the computer. It's going to impact my relationships. It's going to cause me to pursue purity in a a way that that, that I'm driving for that. It's going to cause me to to live out all that God's given to me. And as we see this this morning, we recognize that Jesus, He prioritizes preaching, that He reprioritizes our problems, and that He proves His authority. And I would ask you this morning, how are you responding to the authority of Jesus? This one who can forgive sins. The one who can heal those who are broken. The one who makes everything new. The one who has risen from the dead, proclaimed victory over sin and death. Who is seated at the right hand of God. How are you responding to him? Do you believe the gospel? Are you surrendered to it? I'm sure there are some of you here today that maybe some of this is new. I would encourage you to explore it deeply. There are some of you who this isn't new, but you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. That you, you get it, and you get it, but you are just not willing to surrender. I encourage you to surrender. Let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day of transformation. Let today be the day when Jesus says, I'll take those and your sins be cleansed and be made new. For those of us who are believers today, that that we would be amazed at what God has done for us. At the end of our passage, it says, all these people are amazed and they're glorifying God. And the question for us, are we glorifying God? Does your life demonstrate that you love God more than you love yourself? As we think about the burden for others, are you concerned about others? I mean, I think about the amazing, these four friends, they were concerned. They believed. They did more than just pray. They got busy. They worked to overcome difficulties to get their friend to Jesus. They got creative and thought about, okay, we can't go the normal way. We've got to get creative and figure out how do we get this person to Jesus. They worked together to make that happen. Do we have that kind of concern and passion for those, above, those around us who need the forgiveness of Christ? I encourage us this morning to celebrate this authority of Jesus, that we recognize the priority of preaching, that we would prioritize that in our own lives and our relationships with others, 
that we would allow God to continue to reprioritize our problems because it's so easy for us to, to, to see the physical and the relational things as our primary priority rather than the gospel and the word of God. And then we would also surrender to the authority of Jesus. How will you respond? What will you do? In your bulletin, there are some notes. I encourage you to take a look at that. I encourage you to consider, I will do this in response to this message. Well, as I pray, after I pray this morning, the um, ushers will receive our morning offering. And so let us look to the Lord for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us and you've sent your son Jesus to bring us forgiveness and healing and new life. God, I pray that we see the, the grumblings of these scribes and asking who can forgive sins but God alone, that, that it would be evident to them just as it was evident to us that Jesus is God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live surrendered and submitted lives to you for your glory, for the good of others. Lord, we are grateful that you love us. You love us with an undying love, and you've demonstrated that through the work of Jesus. God, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.